Greetings and welcome to the Trauma and Social Work Podcast. Thank you for listening to Season 2. You are listening to Tanya Octave, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. My goal is to provide education, resources, suggested practices, and understand more about the aspects of trauma and social work. This podcast is for you because we are all impacted by trauma. I am your host. Go grab your notepad, pen, or pencil, a warm cup of tea, and let's get down to business. This season is to focus on the voices of others impacted by trauma. Although I may speak on behalf of others with their permission, this is still their voice. You will hear from social workers, parents, families, children, teenagers, clinicians, and just so much more. You will hear from all people, regardless of their heritage, ethnic background, gender or sexuality, identification, social economic status, and much more. Let's take a deep, profound listening to all voices. podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today, We have Joan, who has worked for the Child Welfare Department for almost three decades, a little over 28 years. She is a dedicated social worker. She is someone not only passionate about her job, but someone who is not threatened to speak her mind. Joan loves God and feels connected to God, and she lives to serve God. This is one avenue of her service. For Joan, being a social worker is not about a job, but a command to a higher source. Joan is not only an expert in the field of child abuse and neglect cases, but she also knows intimately the struggles of foster parents, biological parents, and children in terms of mental health. She studies children in foster care and develops and assesses their overall wellness plan by talking to hospitals, therapists, and many others. This is what Joan does well. There are ways to truly authentically listen to children who are suffering in the foster care system, whether it is through over-medication, under-utilizing natural supports, but at the end of the day, Joan is the voice of these children and advocates for them at court. Joan is Caucasian. She was raised in another part, or I'll say she was raised in another state, a state that wasn't culturally diverse. However, since relocating to an urban area, she's learned to adapt and she's learned what it means to be truly compassionate. Joan at first glance is judged in many ways by other people of color. However, As families and children get to know her, they see her spirit, her soul, 
and begin to open up and trust her. I thought it would be significant to hear her voice about her work in mental health and children in the foster care system. When we think about children in the foster care system, we don't really consider the long-term impacts of trauma. We know what research states, we know what policies and laws are used to guide our practice. However, we don't spend enough time, enough money, enough energy, and enough resources to provide an integrative, holistic treatment plan for children, especially those who've been separated from their families. This is where Joan stepped in. So Joan, with that being said, welcome and welcome. I want to first thank you for your time and your commitment to doing this podcast with me. I hope that this message reaches those who need to hear it. I hope that your voice continues to grow and that you share your experience in hopes for a real change. So when you think about trauma and children in foster care, what comes to mind? Just the hurt and the emotions they're going through. And I feel that people really, even though intellectually and educationally, they think they understand what these children are going through, but I don't think often they really do. They're looking in from a head perspective and not a heart perspective. And I feel a lot of people don't have compassion as to what they're actually struggling with and what they've been through in their trauma. And I think we talked a little bit about this and how sometimes when kids are in foster care, they may have certain behaviors and we sometimes may want to give them medication versus really kind of seeing that compassionately, as you say, from a trauma lens. Do you see that? Absolutely. Um, when these children are plucked out of their homes in the middle of the night, even though it's the most harrowing situation sometimes where they've maybe been neglected, not fed, um, don't have proper bedding, their parents have left them alone. They still love their parents and they're going to foster care. And often before you know it, the foster parents or their relatives are complaining about their behavior when they haven't even had a chance to adjust to their new surroundings. And even if they knew the relatives, sometimes they um, act like they don't understand why they're acting this way. And sure enough, if they're put in therapy, they're often referred to a, a psychiatrist who prescribes medication for them. And when they really don't need it, they just need time to heal and work through their trauma without being medicated. And fortunately, the state and in general started to see how many children were being put on medications, even like some 10-year-olds with antipsychotic medications because their behavior was out of control. And they added a step when the doctor files a um, application to the psychotropic medication application desk. They, we now call the child and ask how they feel about being on the medication, whether they agree with being on it or not. And a lot of them don't, didn't even realize that they had a say in the matter. And so I feel like that step has been very beneficial so that children feel like they have a voice. 
So there was a time when children, although we're demonstrating trauma behaviors or trauma-related symptoms, they would go into, let's say, placement, see a psychiatrist, be put on medication, and weren't even asked about how they felt about this process? Exactly. And since a lot of these psychiatrists are, there's not that many of them, they work in different agencies, they spend about 15 minutes with the child and then make a uh, determination what their diagnosis is and their medication. And I've seen many kids um, hospitalized were seen by five different psychiatrists within a three month period. And they, they have different diagnoses. They keep changing the medication and the younger kids probably um, feel like, I think doctors in general in society have way too much power like people don't question them. And so I just interviewed a 17 year old the other day and she said that this medication made her feel detached and she didn't like it. And I said, well, you have a right to tell the doctor that. And she said, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I said, this is your body. Wow. If it's not assisting you or benefiting you, then you don't have to stay on it. And she like was complete. When I tell some of these kids, they have a say in the matter. They're like shocked. Like, they had no idea that they have the right to speak up. Well, we, the adults, need to do a way better job on educating children and their families about the impacts, even side effects to some of these medications. Um, when, you, when you think about care, how do you think this trauma that they experience really impacts them and their families? Well, I believe that... Um, one thing that often comes up is I've, even, I've seen relatives and foster parents kind of villainize the parents. Um, I don't always see that even if the parents are, have done what some may call egregious things, I, I still think we need to have compassion for the parents because they've probably had um, historical trauma too, and that's why they, their children end up in the system. But I often see that um, relative caregivers and foster parents villainize the parents. They put them down. They don't give them credit for the things they do right. Like if they are on time for three visits but are late for the fourth and everybody focuses on that negative quality. And then the children feel a divided loyalty between their caretaker and their parents, even if it goes to the point of adoption. They, they always feel some type of loyalty to their parents. And um, I don't think a lot of people understand that. And I think people need to tread lightly when they're talking about the parents in front of the children and not make negative comments about them. Well, I just think that's so beautiful how you said that. And it reminds me of parental alienation and what goes on when we have family law cases and there's a divorce and how this can be very discouraging for the child to have to na navigate, navigate the emotions of both parents. So now, even in the foster care system, there may be the idea that kids are now having to navigate the emotions of caregivers and the emotions of their parents and still being placed in the middle, which we could then also be adding to an additional layer of the trauma for them. Exactly. And there, so uh, we have a lot of domestic violence cases. So not only are the children divided in their loyalties between the 
caregivers and the parents, they're often divided in their loyalties between the mother and the father. Mm-hmm. And um, that's another layer of trauma that they're still yeah. working through too. So a lot of stuff that we are just missing um, when it comes to the foster care system. Um, just to tread back a little bit to psychotropic medication, do you ever hear of alternative practices or recommendations for children in foster care, or is it just that they're only recommended psychotropic medications? Do they get other adjunctive services provided? Actually, that's one of the things that changed on the form now that court wants to know what other um, treatment has been initiated, like obviously therapy and conjoint therapy, but now there's a whole section on there, like um, what homeopathic, for lack of a better word, um, has been tried. Like um, they even have on their Indian cultural traditions, like, well, this is, this is um, somewhat like the Indians used to smoke the peace pipe. So I don't think that's what they mean, but there's so a part of that may be in the Indian <laughs> cultural traditions. A part of that may be Ayurvedic medicine, and Ayurvedic exactly. medicine looks at natural ways to heal the the body based on your dosha. So what you are born into the world naturally, and then life happens to get you out of balances. And there are things using Ayurvedic medicine to bring you back into balance. So that may be one of the alternative Indian kind of cultural principles. Exactly. Like they want to, and then they do ask what extracurricular activities, like, I don't think people, um, actually a lot of um, group homes now, which are called short-term residential therapeutic placements, they are bringing in different modalities like yoga. And I was really impressed to see that. And um, they want to, the court wants to make sure they're in extracurricular activities. I'm, firm believer in exercise and sports um, being beneficial to the child because they can get out a lot of their anger and aggression and anxiety and um, diffuse that and also learn social skills at the same time. So the court really is focusing on what else is being done other than just giving them medication. Well, I am really happy to see that we're at least going in some direction. We're not there yet, but we're going in some direction, and it's good that the courts are at least open to this possibility. One of the things that I think about was nutrition and the food that is being offered in foster homes and in group homes, and even with foster parents. I wonder what your thoughts were about offering nutrition classes, because we know food could be linked to ADHD. We know that Food is also linked to depression and anxiety-related symptoms. Yes, you know, well, they do sign a contract that they're going to provide three nutritious meals a day to the as foster parents. But as you know, as parents, like, sometimes they probably get lazy and just buy hot pockets. But um, they really need to serve the children with, like, a well-rounded meal, like salads and I, I mean, the group homes get like thousands of dollars each month to care for kids. And I'm thinking of my kids in these group homes who are morbidly obese and they um, try to implement a nutrition program, but then sometimes the kids don't want to abide by it. So they cave in by giving them chips or comfort food and then it doesn't even help. And some of these kids are so obese, they're borderline diabetic. So 
I do believe that the foster parents and caregivers, they need to make an extra effort to prepare healthier meals with more protein, fruits and vegetables, and not get lazy and just, I mean, even someone might think spaghetti is making an effort, but there's a lot of carbs in that. And um, and just to, um, you know, it's the old saying, you are what you eat. And I, and um, a lot of foster parents also rely on the free meals that the school provides, but those aren't often nutritious either. So I don't think people really have examined, um, unless those who are in nutrition um, insightful, for lack of a better word, that how much diet really affects somebody's mental health and overall health. And maybe at this point, moving forward, some of those considerations will happen. So Joan, in a perfect world, if you had three wishes, what would you like to see happen to help out our kids? Well, you know, one thing I just thought of while we were talking is, you know, when the child comes in the system, we do, we re- we have educational liaison there to help with their educational needs. We have, um, they refer them to therapy to, um, for their psychological needs, and we make efforts to make their physical needs, but a lot of Uh, people have forgotten the spiritual needs like they're supposed to even honor whatever like if a Muslim child is placed in a Catholic home they're supposed to allow that child to um, practice religion the way they want and not interfere but I think a lot of the kids um, they aren't they aren't going to church or they're not involved in any kind of worship and I think that really affects them too and that's something that could help them in a perfect world I would like to see the kids have less placements that people might understand the trauma they're going through before they give up on them. We have um, foster parents that are specially trained to take care of children with emotional problems, but once they break a window, they're calling in to give a 14-day notice. So I just think people really need to work with these kids and understand where they're coming from and and make a long-term commitment knowing what they're going into to so these children don't have to be moved multiple times. We've had kids in our system who've had like 20 different placements. Mm-hmm. And then those are the ones you hear about who end up in prison or homeless um, or being human trafficking victims. And we need to do a better job in trying to make more of a commitment to them. What would be your second way? <laughs> um not like as if that wish is not a big, tall order, but in a perfect world. Well, you know, lately I've been noticing the court reports. Um, we do order parents to do certain things. And I've seen um, some reports where the parents did like 36 parenting classes out of 40 and um, did a drug program, but might have missed a few tests here and there. I think we need to like not... I do think they need to comply with the court orders, but if they've done like 80% and have fallen short that we shouldn't just recommend that they stay in the Mm -hmm. foster care system. I think we need to give people a chance. That's very important. Yes, because I I have, unfortunately there are cases where the kids have gone back like three times and been re-detained and that's extremely traumatic. But I feel like when I'm reading these reports, I'm saying, you know, they're really hard on these people. Like they've done almost everything, but maybe they missed a drug test once in six months. And I, 
or missed a couple visits. And I just feel like they're too hard on them and that we need to keep families together more. Okay. So maybe the second wish would be have more flexibility with services. It must make sense. It's not just about completing 40 classes, but maybe 38 and having a discussion about what that parent learned in those 38 classes. Yes, and there are parents who like, they really never felt like anyone was supporting them to get their children back. So they give up, but then they come back 10 years later later and want their kids and they've been sober. They didn't complete a program maybe, but they made a commitment to and a resolve to change their life. And there's no reason that we can't reconsider those kids if the child is still in an unstable placement. Third wish you have? Well, um, that child abuse and neglect didn't exist. But we as a community, it's not just up to the social workers. If you're, it takes a village, which is kind of a, um, I don't want to give a generic quote, but we need to look out for kids in our own neighborhoods. And if we see them struggling, we need to say, how are you doing today? Like LA is such a big place and people are all about their own business and they don't really want to get involved in other people's lives. But we need to just read out, reach out to children in everyday life to see how they're doing. And even if they are in quote unquote, an intact family home and to prevent these things from happening, because we've had cases where children were being abused and people in the neighborhood or community knew and nobody did anything. And um, not that we always want to bring more people to, to the department's attention, but if someone's being harmed, we need to have an antenna out and be more sensitive what a child might be going through, whether we're a social worker or not. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time participating in this podcast with me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, everybody. My takeaways from this episode. It was just really nice to have the opportunity to talk with Joan. I really enjoy talking with Joan and I love her honesty and admire her dedication and bluntness when it comes to being a social worker. I took away some important themes as Joan has many great ideas and ways to make changes within the foster care system. However, I will limit it to three essential points. One, children are being placed on psychotropic medication. There is little discussion about the long-term effects, the side effects, and the potential exacerbation of the child's symptoms. Children are being abused and neglected. They experience trauma developmental and chronic trauma, and there is no pill that can change that. Pills only minimize the symptoms so that adults will feel more comfortable. We need to do better as adults looking into alternative practices and resources for kids. That brings me to number two, important themes noted by Joan. The courts are open to these extracurricular activities, providing therapy, homopathic practices, and maybe even Ayurvedic healing options for kids. There are so many ways to heal the mind, body, and spirit naturally that there needs to be a holistic approach. We need to educate ourselves. We need to educate our courts and the children's attorneys, and we also need to educate our families. 
we need to consider the child's diet. And I'm not talking about the American standard diet, the worst diet, but a diet filled with vegetables, healthy proteins and herbs. We need to give children opportunities to move their body, socialize with their peer groups, feel they are contributing members to their environment, to their society. This gives a child a sense of worth, of meaning. Medication and therapy alone can't offer this. Then there is the third thing Joan expressed a couple of times, this lack of compassion we have for families that we serve. We sometimes interact with families as the police, the enforcer of these rules and policies. We should always be compassionate with children and with their parents. We all have her stuff. I have my stuff, you have your stuff. That's a part about what makes us human. We all have our stuff and we are all working through it. And so do parents. Build a relationship with the family. Be compassionate to their experience. And this works on building trust. This gives us a foundation. Joan is spiritually grounded and she sees that children are not able to share, embrace, or thrive into coming into their spiritual connection. There's so many layers with respect to spirituality and foster care. There is a saying that if you take spirituality from a person, you remove their soul. I hope you were able to hear and feel Joan's compassion and that it may inspire you in some way to do something different for the children and the parents who are involved in the child welfare department. listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others. Like below and subscribe to my channel. I will end by saying the keys to happiness are following the path towards knowing oneself. Ancient comedic proverb.